from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to this Monday edition of Washington Watch. We're broadcasting today from the Bot Radio Network Studios in Kansas City, Kansas. Our thanks to them for hosting us today. I'll talk more about what we've been up to here in Kansas this weekend when I'm joined later by Brittany Jones and Melissa Oden, who are both key leaders in the Value Them Both campaign. That, by the way, is the constitutional amendment that takes the issue of abortion out of the hands of the Kansas Supreme Court and puts it back into the hands of Kansas's elected leaders. The vote, by the way, on that amendment takes place one week from today. Talk more about that later. On the foreign policy front, the Chinese Communist Party warning Nancy Pelosi to stay home. If the U.S. side insists on making a visit, the Chinese side will take firm and strong measures to safeguard our sovereignty and territorial integrity. The U.S. must assume full responsibility for any severe consequence arising thereof. That was an interpreter speaking for Zhao Lijong, deputy director of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs Information Department earlier today. We'll talk with Asian expert Gordon Chang about China's saber-rattling. And as predicted, another public health emergency. For the moment, this is an outbreak that's concentrated among men who have sex with men, especially those with multiple sexual partners. That means that this is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies in the right groups. Despite the fact that it's isolated among men who have sex with men, Tedros, the the uh, WHO director general, declaring on Saturday another health emergency. The Biden administration, by the way, is reportedly weighing an emergency declaration of their own. Is such a declaration warranted? And is the media downplaying the origins and the spread of monkeypox out of fear of the politics associated with it? We'll talk with Dr. Andrew Bostom, clinical trialist and associate professor of family medicine at Brown University. Attention, Georgia pastors. This Thursday, FRC will host a Watchman on the Wall pastors briefing at Grove Level Baptist Church in Maysville, Georgia. I'll be there. General Jerry Boykin will be there. And we'll also hear from Congressman Jody Heiss, Pastor Jeff Appling, Dr. Andrew Brunson, Bishop Garland Hunt, Bishop Patrick Wooden, and others to register and find out more about the Watchman pastors briefing. Go to watchmanpastors.org or you can go to tonyperkins.com. Today's word coming from the Stand on the Word Bible reading plan is found in Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. But then the psalmist says this, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. You know, God is our very present help in time of trouble. To join us in this encouraging journey through the Bible, visit frc.org slash Bible. All right, one more announcement for our friends in Missouri, just across the river here. If you're in Kansas City, in the Kansas City area, I'll be a part of a Faith and Freedom Summit at Summit Christian Academy this evening. That's this evening. Senator Josh Hawley will be there, as will Congressman Vicki Hartzler. That's at 7.30 p.m. this evening. So if you're in the area, come out and join us at Summit Christian Academy. 
All right, a news report claiming that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi plans to visit Taiwan next month with a delegation has the Chinese Communist Party up in arms with the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman uh, Zhao Lijong warning of serious consequences, including military action. While the U.S. is no stranger to angry responses from China, the CCP's latest warning over Speaker Pelosi's potential trip appears to be triggering a different response from the Biden administration. Why is that? Well, here to talk about this is China expert Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and the Great U.S.-China Tech War. He can be found on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Tony. First of all, um, obviously this must be significant for the Chinese to respond as they are to Nancy Pelosi's visit. Yes. You know, there's always bluster in, in Chinese uh, communist propaganda. This time there's an ominous tone. And I think it's because they see the disarray in the Biden administration. And because of that, they think that they can boss the president around. So that's what the stakes are here. And so therefore, I think that this crisis is different than ones we've had in the past. The Chinese are serious this time because they're confident. I mean, last week when President Biden was asked about the potential trip, he said this. He said that this was when he was uh, boarding Air Force One. He said, not a good idea. Uh, it's, it sounds as if he's somewhat ambivalent about supporting Pelosi's trip to, to Taiwan. Could that be the weakness that they're perceiving here and, and the reason they're threatening even military action? I think so, Tony. When the president said that on Wednesday, he was saying, oh, the military doesn't think it's a good idea. Well, the president's comments were ill-advised um, because it's not the military that makes the political decision. It's the president of the United States. And by talking about divisions within his administration, he was encouraging the Chinese to become even more belligerent, more provocative, because they think in China that they can actually get what they want. So I think that Biden has actually aggravated the crisis and made it worse than it needed to be. So why is, I know you've mentioned there's perceived weakness. Is this China, the Chinese Communist Party, flexing its muscle in anticipation of some type of move as it pertains to Taiwan? It could very well be that, um, because, you know, they, they saw the debacle in Afghanistan. They saw the failure of the Biden administration to deter Putin in Ukraine. And so Chinese leaders have gotten very aggressive recently. And it's not just in Taiwan. It's also in Second Thomas Shoal in the Philippines and the South China Sea. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, the State Department actually had to warn China and said that it might use force of its own to prevent China from its belligerent activities around that disputed feature. Um, so what we are seeing is a Beijing which is um, demonstrably more aggressive especially in its intercepts of vessels and planes in the global commons. This is exceedingly dangerous. So, so Gordon Chang, the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party spokesman, saying that a, a, basically signaling that a military response is possible to Pelosi's visit. So what would that look like? What type of military response might they engage in? Um, Hu Sui Jin, who was the former editor of Global Times, which is a Communist Party publication, actually said that Chinese planes might accompany Pelosi's plane as it landed in Taiwan. In other words, for Chinese planes to violate Taiwan's sovereign airspace. And obviously, that is unacceptable. 
We don't know exactly what China would do, but that is one of the things that they've actually talked about in public. So we've got to be prepared for that one. I mean, that, that gets pretty risky because when you start doing that, you could have an accident. Uh, something could happen that would trigger an international incident, which, quite frankly, would require a response from the United States. Yeah, so the Chinese intercepted an Australian Poseidon P-8A about a month ago, and it fired chaff, um, which actually was ingested into one of the two engines of the plane. The Australians were lucky that they did not lose that crew. So something like that could happen. And this is just a question of the statistics. Eventually, the law of averages will say that one of these Chinese intercepts will go dangerously wrong, like the one on April 1st, 2001, the Hainan plane incident. So they could bring down Pelosi's plane, for instance. And that, of course, would trigger a spiral from which it would be very difficult to extricate ourselves, and one in which we would have to impose costs on China for um, that type of activity. Gordon, what other activity do we see happening on behalf of China that would suggest that they're moving closer to some type of uh, action, military action, as it pertains to Taiwan? Well, there have been these um, flights through Taiwan's air defense identification zone, which is international airspace, but which is considered to be extremely provocative. And also there have been the joint exercises with the Chinese and the Russians. But the most dangerous things the Chinese have been doing have been elsewhere. So, for instance, they've been sailing their uh, frigates through Japanese territorial water around the Senkakus in the East China Sea. And going back to Second Thomas Shoal, they've been preventing the Philippines from resupply, resupplying their outposts there. Um, and that's the one that triggered um, the warning about the U.S. Uh, using force to protect our Philippine ally. Um, also, we see a dangerous buildup in Ladakh in the Himalayas, um, where Chinese forces below the line of actual control, in other words, in Indian-controlled territory. Around China's periphery, we see much more aggressive action over the last couple months than we've seen in preceding periods. So, so Gordon, is their economy in China such that they could sustain some type of military action or international response to this aggressive behavior? Uh, their economy is in contraction, um, and if it weren't for exports and for Wall Street's investments into Chinese equities, probably the Chinese economy would be in freefall. We've got the debt crisis, the property developers going defaulting, um, the mortgage boycotts, people not paying their mortgages, the suppliers boycott, where suppliers to property developers are not paying their loans, um, the bank runs. Um, this is an economy which is almost in freefall. And that gives Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, an incentive to do something dangerous, to sort of divert the Chinese people away from his policy failures at home. But it would seem to me also, Gordon, that that would give the United States leverage uh, for economic activity against China if they continue to act aggressively toward Taiwan. If we had a president who was willing to use American power, like Reagan was, who was willing to um, use our uh, leverage against the Soviet Union, um, Biden has shown very little inclination to do that. And so, yes, we do potentially have the leverage. Yes, we could move the world to much better outcomes, but we need a president who wants to do that. And unfortunately, we don't have one at the present moment. And so in the meantime, they continue to strengthen their hand while they're being more aggressive internationally with uh, other countries, including the United States. 
Yes. Um, we've seen a China now that is more dangerous than it, I believe, at any time during the history of the People's Republic. I think this is the most dangerous moment in history after the Second World War, more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Checkpoint Charlie Crisis of the year before, because we know from the archives, Tony, that neither Khrushchev nor Kennedy was willing to use nuclear weapons. We don't know what Xi Jinping would do. We don't know what Vladimir Putin would do. But we do know that they have threatened the use of those weapons. And so, therefore, we've got to take them at their word. What's required is strong leadership, a resolve to protect American interests and our allies. And that's going to require, I think, at some point in time, Gordon, that uh, the United States stand up to China. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, Pelosi shouldn't go because we shouldn't trigger a crisis. But if she doesn't go, um, she's going to make China much more aggressive than it is now um, because they don't they don't respect the Biden administration. They would respect it even less if they felt that they could intimidate the president. I think you're absolutely right. I think she has to go at this point. And quite frankly, I give her credit. And this one thing she has done uh, repeatedly, she's challenged the Chinese, especially in their human, human rights record. Uh, so I, I certainly applaud yes. her in that resolve. Uh, Gordon, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Good to see you. Thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate it. All right. Gordon Chang, Gordon G. Chang, at Gordon G. Chang on Twitter. All right. Coming up, the director general of the World Health Organization has formally declared monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern. The Biden administration talking about following suit. What does that mean? I'm going to talk about that after the break. So don't go away or WashingtonWatch.com. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that first by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. 
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. We're broadcasting from the Bot Radio Network studios in Kansas City. Good to have you uh, with us. All right, over the weekend, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, formally declared monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern. That's a designation that the WHO currently uses to describe only two, they've only used it two other times, two other diseases, COVID-19 and polio. I think about that for a moment. So in doing so, he overrode a panel of advisors who were unable to come to a consensus. And that's something that hasn't happened either. Now, the Biden administration is considering a public health declaration in response to the growing outbreak, which is primarily spreading among men who have sex with other men. What could such a declaration do? And does the data so far support such a declaration. With me now to talk about this, Dr. Andrew Bostom, an academic clinical trialist and epidemiologist who is currently a research physician at Brown University Center for Primary Care and Prevention at Kent Memorial Hospital in Rhode Island. Dr. Bostom, welcome back to uh, the program. Thanks for having me on again, Tony. All right. So before we get into the emergency declarations, can you tell our viewers and listeners what is known so far regarding this outbreak? Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, without getting too lurid about it and trying to stay clinical, um, this is an outbreak that's been fueled. Um, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an indigenous virus in in, in Africa. Uh, there have been some sporadic uh, cases before, uh, but this particular uh, that have reached outside of Africa, uh, but this particular uh, outbreak has been fueled, uh, you know, suffice to say, by gay bacchanalia. Uh, and uh, you can see that very clearly in a, in a very dry paper that was published in the New England Journal within the past week, uh, which described uh, 528 cases from 16 countries. Um, 84% of the cases were in Europe, Israel, uh, Australia. 16% were in the Americas. Um, and the good news, Tony, is that there hadn't, there hadn't been a single fatality in this, in this large representative sample. Um, but and, and most of the most of the complications were skin lesions. Uh, some were very painful. Uh, a, a percentage around 10 percent did require hospitalization. But even those hospitalizations were typically for skin infections, skin pain. Um, and uh, again, no no fatalities. Um, uh, and I, I think we have to take a look at one of the tables uh, from this from this New England Journal paper. And 
again, in very dry tabular clinical terms, uh, 98% of the, of the uh, individuals who were infected out of these roughly 528 infections uh, were homosexual, bisexual men. 75% were white. 41% um, were HIV positive. So again, it's sort of defining the group. Um, and uh, of those that were tested, about 30% had some other form of sexually transmitted disease. Um, again, I want to keep this dry, but, you know, they did take this type of information where the sexual history uh, could be uh, gleaned. Um, the, the median number of sex partners in the press uh, three months was five, and, and the range, the 25th to 75th percentile range was three to 15. Um, and then they, they said that 20% uh, had what's called chemsex, which meant high-risk sexual activity uh, under the influence of drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is, this is not even this, I would, this is not typical of, of, of the homosexual community. Um, this is, this is typical of, of aggressively hypersexualized, uh, uh, gay men. Um, and so I don't see how that translates into, and again, I'm sorry for the lurid, uh, explanation. I don't see that, how that translates into the, into the general population. It, it just doesn't. Well, one other statistic from the report in the New, New England Journal of Medicine was the fact that 95% of these cases were spread through sexual activity. Exactly. So th this is very isolated to those who engage in, as you described, very high-risk behavior. So right. this is not like COVID that you're you know, sitting on an airplane, oh, no. all of a sudden it jumps on you from uh, someone breathing next to you. Uh, exactly. This requires a little bit more. Well, and, and, and they do mention, you know, that there's, I guess, when it was when the disease was originally described in Africa, there was some concern about droplet transmission, you know, you know, respiratory transmission. But I mean, be that as it may, that's sure not how it's transmitting in this in this outbreak that's spread outside of outside of Africa. Uh, and so I, I, I think it looks eminently avoidable by avoiding these practices. And, and again, it's it's, you know, it. it it's not to cast aspersions on, on the gay community, because it seems to be, uh, even though it's, again, largely confined to, to gay and bisexual men, it, it, it's, it's those that have a proclivity towards, you know, towards, um, you know, very, very aggressive sexual uh, and promiscuous sexual practices. So that, that, that's, that's quite clear from, from these data, Tony. So, Dr. Bostom, I would think that uh, any act, actions that uh, who or the U.S. government would take should be directed at the area where there's a problem. I mean, I don't know. Exactly. I, just, I don't, advice, I don't get Yeah, I don't see where advice. we need this broad declaration. Yeah, this is, this is where it becomes very troubling about the, about the, the cultural relativism, political correctness, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this, this could clearly be nipped in the bud by discouraging, you know, such practices, uh, you, you know, and, and I, I'm sorry if that somehow is offensive to people's different mores, but, but that's really what needs to be done. Now, the other thing is that if there are these rare serious cases, there, you know, there, there are options, uh, there, there's immunoglobulin that, that can be given in severe cases. Um, there's a couple of uh, antivirals that, that have shown some promise. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they have their own toxicities with them. Um, but, but the point is, the most obvious way to, to stem this is, is, is to not engage in those very high-risk sexual right. behavior practices. So how many cases are we talking about so far in the United States? 
at the time of this paper, uh, it, it, it was, it was um, they were saying that so 16% of, of about 3,000 cases were roughly coming from the, from the United States. I don't know what the exact number is. It, it has gone up. Um, right. But but it's, it's it's nothing compared to you know an influenza outbreak, uh, a COVID outbreak, something like that. And they've already the federal government has shipped more than three hundred thousand doses of the monkeypox vaccine uh, to which is uh, to basically very... the which is basically the smallpox vaccine. And and you know right. smallpox vaccine is is has, was very effective in eradicating smallpox, but it has its own toxicity profile. So for heaven's sake, if it's going to be used, it's again, it should be highly, highly targeted. Right. All right, Dr. Boston, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining Take care, us. Tony. Take care. All right. All right, folks, stick with us. We're coming back with more Washington Watch after the break. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, Students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us. We are uh, broadcasting live from the studios at the Butt Radio Network in Kansas City. I was here this weekend uh, speaking in a couple churches, different events for the Value Them Both campaign. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. I, I want to just uh, continue on here for just a moment on this issue of the, the monkeypox and putting this into perspective. That, as we mentioned, and and I know this is a family program, but we need to educate our children that behavior has consequences. 98% of these cases of monkeypox are men who have sex with men. 
95% of the cases so far, this was as of June 24th in the New England Journal of Medicine, was transmitted by 95% transmitted through sexual activity. All right, here, here's a way to avoid monkeypox. Don't do it. I mean, you know, if they want to declare a national emergency, maybe they need to do away with these uh, uh, apps like Grindr, maybe shut down the gay bars uh, where a lot of this activity has been centered. I mean, they, they, they closed the churches during COVID, made everybody wear masks. Um, or are they going to, I mean, 300,000 doses of monkeypox monkey vaccine. And they're saying they're, they're gearing up to be able to do 80,000 monkeypox tests a week. I don't think there's going to be that great of a need for this. And by the way, over the weekend, it's very interesting. Uh, on Drudge, there was a headline that two children had contracted monkeypox. Two, uh, I believe both of them were eight years old. I, I can't find it out because they took the article down. I actually tweeted about this because based on this information, and I'm, I'm talking as a former police officer, 98% of the persons infected did were men who had sex with men. 95% of the cases were transmitted through sexual activity. There is reasonable suspicion that those children could have been sexually abused. And I'm wondering if the authorities are looking into that. Even the CDC director acknowledged that there were children. And, of course, they were using that to build the pressure for this emergency declaration. But it looks more like there could have been a crime committed. I wonder if they're going to be pursuing that. Probably not. All right, I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to bring in Connor Simmelsberger uh, from the Family Research Council. He is going to, uh, he is our Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity. And I'm going to get an update. A lot of happening on Capitol Hill's Congress is coming back in. Big agenda as they're trying to move through prior to their August break. And of course, last week we talked about the House passing this uh, codification of the redefinition of marriage. The Senate poised to take that up as well. Connor, uh, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back, Tony. All right, so what's on the agenda this week as uh, Congress is churning through things to try to get to that August break? Yeah, you know, you're talking about monkeypox. Well, right now, Congress has a COVID problem. They've squeezed two years' worth of legislative work into about two weeks. And, you know, latest reports are up to three or four senators on the Democratic side have tested positive for COVID, including Joe Manchin. Um, at, at Leahy is out with a hip. And uh, Senator Murkowski also tested positive for COVID. So now they, they've dealt themselves a raw deal by having to push through must-pass legislation in a few weeks. And those things are like our, our annual funding bills to fund the government. They have about 60 days to, to fund the government for the next year. That runs out September 30th. Our defense authorization that provides authorization to run the Department of Defense for the next year, that's a must-pass bill. And they're talking about chips, bills uh, to do technology chips. And like you said, uh, trying to squeeze in, even though all these crises are happening, uh, they're trying to squeeze in a show vote um, that has some real consequences if passed on the Disrespect for Marriage Act. And, and Connor, one thing about the Senate, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Senate did not change their rules like the House did where you cannot do proxy voting. So the senators actually have to be there in voting. So if you have uh, some out with COVID, then they're unable to, uh, to vote. And with the margins being so narrow, some of these things may not happen. 
That's right. You know, it's a 50-50 split in the Senate. So uh, no margin for error at all. And that's what the Democrats got dealt this week is that, uh, you know, because they followed the rules, unlike the House, to, to have our senators, members, representatives be there in person to represent us in our government, uh, they must be present to take votes, to move legislation, to uh, confirm nominees. And right now they uh, have few members out. So it will slow things down. But that does not mean they won't uh, get those members back as quickly as they can and try to squeeze some of these last bills out before uh, the election season really heats up. And, and folks need to really contact their senators this week. There are two senators to speak to them regarding this redefinition of marriage because Senator Schumer has said he's going to push this through. As you said, it's a show vote to try to, uh, you know, to pump, pump up their base. Uh, but it has significant consequences for religious freedom in this country, as we've seen over the last seven years since the court redefined marriage, as well as the future of, uh, of children. So uh, FRC has an action item. Where can people find it? Yeah, um, frcaction.org. You can sign up there to get our alerts and make sure you're contacting, like Tony said, uh, you said uh, both your senators need to find, uh, find out from you that you want them to defend uh, marriage as we know it between a man and a woman. And uh, this bill goes much beyond that. So let them know today, especially if they're home in their districts in the next couple weeks as well. Um, they should be hearing from you on uh, where you want them to be on this important issue. All right, Connor, always great to see you. Thanks for uh, stepping in the studio for me. Yep, great to be on with you, Tony. All right, so you can also go to TonyPerkins.com, and under the episode resources, we have a link there where you can contact your two senators. Now, you know, this is not just about repealing DOMA. This is about eliminating DOMA, but it's also about creating open season on religious freedom in this country. And we, we've been talking about what's happening in the classroom with the indoctrination of children. This will only accelerate because it'll be a green light for the left to take over. All right, folks, don't go away. We're coming back with more Washington Watch after the break. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text S-T-A-N-D 
to 67742. That's stand to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. And as you can tell, I'm not in the studio. That's because I'm in the studios of Bot Radio Network in Kansas City. Been here this weekend. Going to be here through tonight. In fact, if you're in on the other side of the river in Missouri, a Faith and Freedom Summit tonight at Summit Christian Academy at 7.30 p.m. I'll be there. Senator Josh Hawley will be there. Congressman Vicki Hartzler as well. That's at 7.30 p.m. Faith and Freedom Summit at Summit Christian Academy. Well, next Tuesday, Kansas will be the first state in the nation to have the abortion issue on the ballot following the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on the Dobbs abortion case that overturned Roe and Casey. When the voters in the state head to the polls on August the 2nd, they will have the opportunity to weigh in on the Value Them Both Amendment that will defend Kansas's existing pro-life laws and ensure that the state does not become a destination for extreme abortion procedures like New York or California. Here with me now in person to talk about the important amendment is Melissa Oden, founder and CEO of the Abortion Survivors Network, and Brittany Jones, director of policy and engagement at Kansas Family Voice. Ladies, welcome. Thank you for having us. We're glad to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's good to be here. In fact, it was, you know, it was over 100 degrees when I arrived, and now <laughs> it's like in the 70s. You guys, it, it's, I'm freezing. It's, uh, there's weather that blew through here, but things are going to heat up as we get to the ballot next, uh, the ballot box next Tuesday, next Monday, uh, for the value them both vote. So tell us about it. What's it about? Yeah, we are so excited to be the first state in the nation to take on the abortion question after uh, Roe was overturned just a month ago. Uh, so value them both is a pro-life constitutional amendment that returns the power of the people of Kansas to have a say on the abortion question. Just, I said next Monday. It's next Tuesday. Next Tuesday. I, I yes, sure. August 2nd. Now, you could, if you show up Monday, that's fine. You'll just be there a day in advance. Right. But, you uh, might have to vote at a different location yes, right. on that day. Yeah. But yeah, so our Kansas Supreme Court in 2019 took away the people's ability to place even the most basic regulations on the abortion industry. And so value them both restores their ability to have a say. Right. So, Melissa, this this doesn't eliminate abortion in the state. Uh, It simply allows the elected officials to represent the people of the state instead of the court making the decision. 
Absolutely. And the other side does continue to spread such misinformation and outright lies about it, Tony, saying that it is a ban. But when you read through social media comments and someone challenges the other side to say, this is not a ban. Have you read the amendment? It's not a ban. And the, the abortion supporters will say, oh, I know it's not a ban, but we can't trust our elected officials. Yeah. Well, who wants to trust the courts? I mean, that's that's why we work these things out mm-hmm. through the legislative process. Now, there are some and I and I look, I have I, I think we need a nation that embraces the sanctity of human life from conception until natural death. That's my view. Uh, that's the policy I've worked for. But I've also taken um, the incremental approach, knowing what society is ready for. I, you know, 20 some years ago, I authored the uh, the, the bill in Louisiana of abortion clinic regulation acts. That's one that has actually been struck down here by the Supreme Court. So right now, your clinics are operating like ours were in Louisiana back in the 90s with unsanitary conditions that puts the lives of women at risk. That's one of the things that really is on the ballot here. Yeah, so uh, what a lot of people don't know is that as as recently as 2010, there was a clinic in Kansas City, so just, you know, 20 minutes from here, that was operating much like Kermit Gosnell's clinic in Philadelphia. Uh, he, they were, he was using carpeted rooms to perform abortions. He was sterilizing his instruments in a dishwasher, which for the record is not sterile. Um, women were getting sick. Women were dying. Um, and so that's why we passed our clinic licensing laws in t- 2011. And our Kansas Supreme Court has already struck down those laws. They're already unenforceable. Um, And so we just want to be able to protect those laws in Kansas. We're not asking for a lot, but we're asking for the ability for the duly passed laws to be enforced. So, Melissa, these are laws that have already been passed. I think there's about 25 in total that are in question here that have been passed that because of the Supreme Court decision in the state of Kansas are now in jeopardy. And so essentially you would have nothing in this state that would protect the unborn or their mothers. Exactly. And so that point that Brittany is making, you know, the first law that was overturned was uh, dismemberment abortion. So it was a, is it 19%, 17, 17%, 17% increase in dismemberment abortions after that was struck down. Then we see abortion clinics, safety and regulations struck down. We know that there is a third one that they are attempting to work through right now. And so that is what the future of Kansas is. One by one, those basic protections for women and children will be stripped. You know, I find this Kind of interesting. This is a educational moment, I think, for the nation because those on the left said that uh, when Roe and Casey were overturned, that they acted as if abortion was outlawed in the country. It, it is not, and we've been saying that from the beginning. It simply goes back to the states, and that's what's happening here: is that the voters of Kansas will have the opportunity to go to the ballot and to decide. All right, who do we want to make the policy as it pertains to the sanctity of human life? Do we want the Supreme Court of Kansas to do it, or do we want our elected representatives to do it? That's essentially, as I see, what this is all about. That's exactly right. And it, this is always the abortion industry strategy. Uh, they tried to come into uh, conservative states like uh, 
Louisiana, like uh, Kansas, like Alaska, and make those states radically pro-abortion through the court system. Um, and so it was a New York abortion organization that actually sued our laws, um, and they're getting a lot of their funding from New York as well. Um, and so this is the people of Kansas. It's their opportunity to take back their constitution. It's their opportunity to take back their laws and take back their state. And, and I, my observation in the 36 hours I've been here, 48 hours I've been here, was at uh, Wichita yesterday morning at Central Christian Church, and then we had a big rally last night at uh, Lenexa Baptist Church. Um, a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, there's a lot of people who are really, really motivated uh, to stand for life. That's exactly right. And we're seeing Kansans from all stripes, uh, all different political backgrounds, all faith backgrounds um, come together behind the Value Them Both Amendment. I think you felt the energy last night at Lenexa Baptist of just people who are so excited to protect moms and babies. Um, that's who Kansans are. Right. We aren't a radically pro-abortion state. Well, I have to say that, you know, because of the history of Kansas there, you know, when you had Governor Sebelius, you had uh, uh, Tiller, Dr. Tiller, the abortionist with late-term abortions. That is how Kansas has kind of been seen in the spotlight uh, nationally, but it's not what Kansas is. And this is an opportunity for Kansans to correct the record. Absolutely. And I'm excited about that. You know, the state of Kansas, as you shared, Tony, has a history when it comes to abortion. But what we know is time and time again, the people of Kansas support life. Mm -hmm. And they want life not just for this day and time, but for future generations. Well, just before I was going on the air, I, I got a call from one of your former governors who was probably one of the most pro-life governors that the country has ever seen as a longtime friend of mine, Governor Sam Brownback, who actually uh, some of this, these laws that he signed in uh, to law when he was governor passed by the legislature are at risk in this Supreme Court decision. That's exactly right. Um, he, he, Sam Brownback, uh, Governor Sam Brownback, is the one who was able to sign the live dismemberment abortion ban, which actually led uh, to this, this 2019 ruling uh, that really set us back. But that was the first in the nation of that kind of law. We were we've been a leader on the question of life since 1997. Um, and so that is why outside abortion organizations attacked our state. They attacked our laws. Um, and so it is, it's time to take those laws back. Now, Melissa, you've got an amazing story. And I know our listeners have heard it before because you've been on Washington Watch a number of times as an abortion survivor. And of course, you now minister to abortion survivors. In fact, you just had a recent uh, retreat with I think 25 mm -hmm. abortion survivors. And because of your work and the work of others, uh, abortion has a face. Mm -hmm. I mean, a live, living faith face, a voice. What would you say to those that are just kind of on the sidelines? And I, I'm talking about the Christian community. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm talking about our listeners, those that, you know, they're, they're uh, engaged to a degree, but maybe they think, ah, maybe this is not such a big of a deal. What would you say to them if they're standing on the sidelines of this? I would say look into the eyes of my 14-year-old and 7-year-old daughters and ask them how abortion has impacted their lives because they would tell you that their mom wouldn't be alive if an abortion would have ended her life. They would tell you how their grandmother Ruth was forever devastated by the abortion that was supposed to take my life. 
They would tell you that they wouldn't be alive. They would tell you that their pain exists knowing that this happens to other children in our world. And it's easy to think that maybe it happens to someone else or that it's somebody else's business, right? I, oh, well, you know, I personally wouldn't, but, but it does happen in our churches, in our families, in our communities. And if it's not us, then who is it going to be, Tony? And it's also about, you know, when we're, when we're in a dark place, when we've made decisions and the consequences are cascading in around us, and we see no way out. That's when the enemy preys upon us and takes advantage, and that's where abortion then seems to be a way out. But you shared something this morning. We had a pastor's breakfast, and you shared something this morning about your mother who for years thought you actually had been aborted successfully, and that during those 30 years that her life just kind of imploded because of the guilt that she bore from that abortion. That's so right. When we talk about abortion, you know, as you shared, abortion has a face and a name. And unfortunately, we haven't come face to face with those nearly, you know, 65 million children who have been affected by abortion. But we also haven't heard from their mothers and fathers who have been impacted by that. And the grandmothers and grandfathers, extended family members, siblings, the abortion clinic workers, the abortionists. You know, when we think about the impact of tens of millions of lives lost. We have hundreds of millions of lives that need to be healed from abortion. Right, right. And I think that's the point that we need to, as Christians, as believers, as those who care about others in society, it's, yes, I want to save the babies. I I, I want to see the babies live. But for every child, there are multitudes of others, as you just articulated, impacted the the mothers, the fathers, the grandparents that all carry a void. And in many cases, as you have talked about in your story, the guilt associated with this. And that robs robs society of potential. It robs individuals of joy and fulfillment. And I, I think we have a duty, I know we do, to be salt and to be light. And part of that is sharing the truth about life. And that's what I've loved about watching Brittany in the midst of this, too, is that she's been a co-leader with the Value Them Both team. This whole team is sharing the message of truth when it comes to what the amendment means and the impact of abortion. Yeah. And, and Brittany, I, I, wanna, I want you to speak to something that there are those that um, really agree with us that abortion is bad, but they feel like you know, we, we need to eliminate all of it and this is not sufficient to do that. What what do you say to them? Yeah, in Kansas, I think the answer is pretty simple. Uh, We have a choice before us on August 2nd. Uh, Like you spoke about last night, will we choose life or will we choose death? And in this instance, our choices are unlimited, unregulated abortion paid for with tax dollars. We're talking about painful late-term abortions. Or we'll choose to vote yes on value them both and to support our laws that have already been passed and work together on creating policies that best protect moms and babies, that help pregnancy resource centers, that help moms make the right choice to protect moms and babies. You know, I I shared this this morning with the the pastors, and and I've actually said this on the program as well, but I think this is a defining moment for our nation. I think it's a defining moment for states. I believe that God's word is true. 
And as I talked about last night from Deuteronomy chapter 30, when we embrace life, when God says choose life, it's not just, that's not just about abortion. That's all encompassing. It's about loving God and obeying God. But when we do that, the blessing of God flows from that. I believe what's on the ballot for Kansans is the ability to choose life and the blessings of God that flows from it. I can envision a Kansas that becomes, as I shared this morning, a haven for life, a refuge for the righteous, a place that God will bless because the people chose to do what was right in the eyes of God. And you two ladies have been a key part of that. And I want to thank you for your leadership. I want to thank you for joining me today on Washington Watch. And we're going to be watching very, very closely for October the 2nd, next Tuesday, for the Value Them Both ballot initiative, the uh, amendment that will be on the ballot. Ladies, thanks for being with me. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. And folks, I want to thank you for joining us as well. Let me again remind those of you who are in the area here in uh, Missouri and Kansas and Kansas City tonight, a Faith and Freedom Summit at Summit Christian Academy. Love to see you there and, uh, and join us. And by all means, if you are in Kansas, make plans now to vote. Now, early voting is already taking place, so you can vote then. Uh, or uh, you can vote next Tuesday, or you can vote right now. But vote and take friends and family with you. To find out more, go to TonyPerkins.com. Until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.